Good morning. Men in the room in particular, I need your prayer. That bit of misinformation that it was 20 years and not 19 came from me. Now, it's only because, my dear, I'm already planning our 20th anniversary. True story, in fact. So then I was sitting there, I was trying to make amends, and I leaned over to Jill and I whispered, Honey, it only seems like 20. That didn't help. (laughs) Please pray for me. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, would you? Acts chapter 21. It's appropriate... Appropriate that today's message comes on a weekend where we are celebrating America. Appropriate because much of what happens to Paul, beginning in our text this morning and really through the end of Acts, you could say is due to some Jews at least getting far too carried away with celebrating Israel. Patriotism gone wrong could well be the title of the message this morning. We'll see what you think. But first... We last left Paul going into the temple courts for seven days together with four Jewish Christians, remember? And they went in there, these five men, in order to purify themselves according to Torah, the law. Paul, especially taking part, helping these four, and indeed purifying himself, in order to show everyone that Paul is indeed living in obedience to the law. Acts 21, verse 24. Before we read what happens next, let's explore a bit. What I'd like to do is explore a bit the physical setting of the story um, uh, that we're going to cover this morning by reviewing the temple and its surroundings. This is where the story takes place. The temple, God's temple, stood on something called a temple mount. That's simple enough. The Temple Mount was this huge platform on which the temple and its courts stood. The picture you're looking at is the Temple Mount today. If you went to Jerusalem today, you could see that if you got up high enough. I've outlined the Temple Mount for you in red. It's a huge platform, isn't it? 900 feet wide, 1,500 feet long. It covers an area of about 30 acres. Huge. The building that you see today in the middle with the gold dome is called a mashad. Say mashad. A mashad or a shrine for Muslim pilgrims. It's called the Dome of the Rock because directly below the dome is a very special rock. Right below the dome is the summit, the very tippy top of Mount Moriah poking up through the floor. And according to Muslim tradition, Muhammad once ascended to heaven on a golden ladder of light from that exact spot. And it just so happens that that's the same spot where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. And it's the same spot where God's temple once stood for about a thousand years before the Romans came and leveled it in 70 A.D. The building you see toward the bottom of the picture with the smaller silver dome is a mosque a mosque or a place of prayer or worship for Muslims. It's called Al-Aqsa Mosque. In Paul's day, along that wall on the southern edge there, something called the Royal Stoa ran, the whole length of that wall. The Royal Stoa being this massive two-story, open-aired, columned building 
where the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin basically ran what went on in that entire temple complex. You see now an artist's drawing of the Temple Mount of Paul's day. God's temple and the inner courts are right there in the middle. And then that's that royal stoa on the bottom. And then that entire open platform, all of that area surrounding the temple is the court of the Gentiles. Here's a view of the Temple Mount today from the east. We've rotated 90 degrees to see it from the east. And again, you see the Dome of the Rock in the middle where God's temple once stood. And there's Al-Aqsa to the south or your left where the royal stoa once stood. And here's a view from the east in Paul's day. Now, in this picture, I also want you to take note of another building that will factor in our Bible story this morning. Right up in that upper right northwest corner of the Temple Mount, right up against it, you'll see something there that looks like a big castle. Okay, I've got a red circle to put around it, so you see it? That castle-looking thing is the Antonia Fortress, named after Mark Antony. The Romans, go figure, built this huge fortress to house an entire Roman regiment. 1,000 of Rome's finest to keep a close watch on these Jews as they praised and worshipped their God. Rome built this, this huge visual and literal reminder that while Caesar may have indeed granted the Jews the right to worship their own God, Rome was nevertheless still large and in charge. Antonia is sort of a big peekaboo, we still see you Jews, so behave. There you see a close-up of the Antonia. Pretty impressive, isn't it? And there's the Antonia again now on the left. This picture is from the west or southwest. We've circled around the Temple Mount almost completely. And those Romans, archaeologists disagree, they either built Antonia exactly as tall as God's temple, or some think even, you know, a span or a cubit, a little bit taller <clears throat> than God's temple. Again, to send that message to the Jews, all right, you can do your, your God thing here with the temple, but don't mess with Rome. All right, with that physical setting for our story this morning in mind, let's see what happens, shall we? Your Bibles are open to Acts 21. I'll leave a picture of where this is taking place for you to look at. Acts 21, I'll begin reading from verse 27. Acts 21, verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, those are the seven days of that purification rite that Paul and those four Jewish men were doing. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. And they recognized him. When you think Asia, you can't think Asia today, province of Asia, think Ephesus or modern day Turkey. Ephesus was the um, first century capital of Asia. These are these Hellenistic Jews. Paul has had run-ins with them before, as you know. We know who've been studying Acts. These are what I've called those stalker Jews. They've been after Paul since missionary journey number one. And it just so happens they're there probably for Pentecost like Paul is, praising and worshiping God. And then Paul strolls by, you know, with these four bald guys, these four Jewish Christians who had their head shaved. And one of them looks over... There he is. You know, we've been after this guy for years. There he is. 
Back to verse 27. So they stirred up the whole crowd and they seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people, against our law, and against this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. Now, what's that all about? Gentiles were invited to worship God in the court of the Gentiles. That big, wide-open area on the Temple Mount platform surrounding the temple itself. But, Gentiles were not allowed into the inner courts of that temple structure itself, the building that sits in the middle. Only Jews could get into those inner courts. It's the Jew-only area. You see a couple of pictures there of those inner courts. And so between the huge court of the Gentiles and the Jew-only inner courts of the temple, they built this short, maybe knee-high wall or barrier, a dividing wall, marking the line between the Gentile only or the Gentile and Jew only. Jews could be in the Gentile court. Marking between the Gentile and Jew only courts. The arrows on the picture are pointing to that knee-high dividing wall. Do you see it? And so, these Hellenistic Jews from Asia, Ephesus, are accusing Paul, among other things, of taking Greeks, Gentiles, past that dividing wall and into the Jew-only inner temple courts. And this was a big deal. The historian Josephus writes about this dividing wall, and he tells us that along this wall at various intervals, there were stone signs, chiseled stone signs, posting warnings, signs that said, Gentiles, keep out. One of the most amazing, it has to be, I think, of archaeological discoveries that we found in the history of the world, archaeologists actually found two of those actual signs. Can you believe it? That were posted on this wall. You see one of the original signs on the screen. That, let's pause there a minute. Isn't that amazing that we found a couple of these things? I mean, Jesus himself, no doubt, no doubt, walked right by that sign, at least, that one. And maybe even read that particular sign when he was there on the Temple Mount. The signs were, Josephus tells us, in both Greek and Latin. And the word-for-word translation of the Greek that we can still read today is this. No one of another nation may enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught shall have himself to blame that his death ensues. Now, that's subtle, right? This was indeed a big deal to the Jews who interpreted certain passages in the book of Numbers as requiring Gentiles to keep out, stay out of these inner Jew-only temple courts. So, it's a matter of obedience to Torah with that stake for these Jews. They were accusing Paul of, of violating the law. Now, you know, if you were here last week or if you've been reading in Acts, this is dramatically ironic. It's really ironic because you remember the very reason Paul is even in the temple that day to be spotted by these Jews 
He's there to prove he keeps the law. So Luke, our author, sets this up. While Paul is there trying to prove he keeps the law, that he's obedient to Torah, he's accused of disobedience. Now some ask the question, you know, do you think Paul really did take Gentiles past that dividing wall into the Jew-only area? There's a difference of opinion, majority opinion, and my strong opinion as well. There's no way. There's no way that Paul actually took a Gentile into the inner courts while he's bent on showing his obedience to Torah. He would have undermined the whole thing. So there's no way. These are false charges against Paul meant to stir up the crowd. Let's see if indeed the crowd gets stirred. What do you want to bet? Verse 30. The whole city was aroused. I would say yes, they're stirred. And the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. That's interesting since he's already been seized. It's like re-seizing Paul, I guess. They seize someone who's been seized. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, it, that's got to be the mother of all subordinate clauses in the entire Bible. I mean, you read right through that. It's like when you put it in a subordinate clause, it's like, you know, while they were trying to kill him. You, what? I mean, they start beating on him with their bare hands, probably. Weapons weren't allowed up in the temple court if he's indeed still on that platform. We'll talk about that in a minute. They start kicking and throwing, throwing down and hitting him with stone. Anything they can get there, they try to kill him. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander in Greek, Kaliarchos, which means this commander was the commander of a regiment of the whole 1,000 uh, soldiers. So this is, this is probably the most important Roman legionnaire in the city. The commander of the Roman troops, news reached him that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers, plural, the Greek behind that is centurion, and a centurion was the leader of a hundred. So there's at least two of those, and centurions would never go alone. They'd always take their full company of a hundred. Some officers and soldiers, so there's 200 at least, plus the commander. So 200 at least, maybe more, ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, uh-oh, here comes Rome, they stopped beating Paul. They got off him, probably leaving him there lying and bleeding and groaning on the pavement. Now, let me pause there a minute. Where exactly is Paul when all this takes place? Well, we know in Acts he starts out on the Temple Mount or even in the temple itself. As a Jew, he could go in there. But then we're told they dragged Paul from the temple and the gates were shut. The problem is we don't know when Luke says from the temple whether he means... From the temple itself, the building in the middle of the platform, or did they drag him from the entire Temple Mount platform itself? It could be either. We'll read in a minute that Paul is taken to the steps leading into that Antonia fortress. That didn't help us because there were steps into the fortress both from on top the platform and from the street below. But wherever Paul is exactly, we can say with assurance that the picture you're looking at, he's in very close vicinity of God's house, the temple, and the temple mount. Verse 33. The commander came up and arrested him, arrested Paul, 
and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Those of you who remember Agabus's prophecy from uh, Caesarea a few verses ago, his prophecy comes true. Then he asked, the commander asked, who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. That is without question uh, in almost every scholar's mind, that Antonia fortress. When Paul reached the steps, when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. I mean, can you picture it? At least 200 Roman soldiers. That wasn't even enough to protect Paul from how angry this and worked up this crowd was. Paul couldn't even walk in the middle of 200. You picture these people pushing in, risking their lives really to reach past this Roman legionnaire who could have ran him through in a heartbeat just to kind of get a piece at Paul. These soldiers have to pick this guy up. So there he is being carried into the barracks. He had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with them, away with them, away with him. Now that's an interesting phrase, an angry mob shouting away with him. Where have we heard that before? Well, our same author, Luke, also wrote a gospel that goes by his name, Luke. And in Luke's gospel, Pontius Pilate tells an angry mob that he is about to let Jesus go free. And very near to the same location that Paul is in our story today. It wouldn't surprise me if it was the same stone, knowing God's sovereignty. But at least very near to where it's going on in Paul's story today, the crowd some 30 years earlier, cries out to Pilate in one voice, away with this man. Two weeks ago, we talked about how Luke repeatedly draws comparisons between Jesus and Paul. And here Luke's at it again. I'll have to add this one to my list. Verse 37. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? And you got the picture. He's up there being carried by the soldiers. I mean, maybe the soldiers even think he's unconscious or half-conscious. Someone's been beating on this guy for a while. How long did it take for the news to reach the commander, for him to come with 200 at least? Five minutes? Twenty minutes? I mean, even five minutes while someone's after you on the ground, a mob of people trying to kill you? Paul's hurting. And yet, the man, I mean, you talk about walking by faith even when you can't see the path. He sees an opportunity. So even from his perch on top of 200 Roman soldiers while people trying to kill him, he manages before he gets away from his people who he still loves. And I say something to you. Do you speak Greek? The commander replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Where does the commander get that from? Some have guessed, we read earlier, that people shouted out different things about who Paul was. Someone guessed that someone shouted that one out. And it's true. Other histories tell us, Josephus naming one, although Josephus said there was 30,000 and not 4,000. We've got a difference in number. But Josephus tells us, fleshes out this story of indeed an Egyptian terrorist who gathered thousands of Jewish faithful and led a charge and a riot against Rome in Jerusalem. 
It ended horribly, as they all did. Rome slaughtered all of those thousands of Jews, but the Egyptian fled into the desert and got away with his life. I'm wondering if the commander is thinking, because this is the question on his lips, I'm wondering if the commander is thinking, sweet, I'm going to get this big old medal. I caught this Egyptian terrorist. Maybe. And he's surprised that an Egyptian terrorist would know Greek. Paul answers, verse 39, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. And having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps, those steps leading into Antonia, and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, Listen now to my defense. This is the very word of God. Amen? Incredible story so far, isn't it? I mean, Luke, I think, is a fantastic storyteller and no better than in these last few chapters of Acts as he builds and builds toward its climax in Rome. Now, I said at the start of the message today that the title of the message could well be Patriotism Gone Wrong. Here's why. One solid take on the strong reaction that these Jews had against Paul and against the gospel that he's preaching is that they thought it would cost them. They thought it would cost them their special elite status as God's people. It wasn't that they didn't understand what Paul was teaching and preaching. It didn't come from a lack of not getting it. I think they got it crystal clear. They got it. Gentiles now, Paul is saying, are just as welcome into God's kingdom as Israel ever was. And once those Jews, some of them at least, got that, for some of them at least, their nationalistic pride, their patriotism, as much as anything, got in the way. They couldn't, some of them, get past this, this idea that everyone is now welcome to freely enjoy that utmost special status as God's people. That was unacceptable to many of them. And they were willing to kill, even, to preserve that special status for them and them alone. That's what I mean by by patriotism gone wrong. That pride, ultimately... Is the buzzsaw that Jesus ran into in Jerusalem. And it's the same buzzsaw here in Acts that our friend Paul finds himself facing in the same place. It's way more, my friends, than a religious or theological dispute going on. It is intensely personal, intensely political. Both Jesus and Paul face the same accusation that they're, destru- they're trying to destroy This place, the temple. And that charge runs much, much deeper than the actual building you see on the screen. That temple represents Israel herself, her special status as God's chosen people. And those Jews accusing Paul saw the gospel as a threat. A threat to that special status before God. Even though it isn't. The gospel only proclaims that now all who believe can enjoy that same special status that Israel enjoyed as God's people, Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. Paul writes in another letter 
that when Jesus dies on the cross, one thing that he did was kick down the dividing wall of hostility. Interesting when you note that that barrier that keeps Gentile out of the innermost special chambers of God, guess what they would call that in the vernacular? The dividing wall of hostility. Christ's death kicks that down. So no longer are non-Jews kept at sort of an arm's length from God. So the gospel doesn't change, take anything away from the Jews. It merely adds to it. Now it adds to it a big piece. It adds to it that the Messiah they've all been waiting for is Jesus. And coming right along with Jesus is His message and His command and His desire which has been the same command and desire for God from the beginning, that all nations would be blessed through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, God's Son. And so the Jews accusing Paul, one way to look at it, I think at least, is they can't see past their own patriotism. They can't seem to lay down their pride long enough at least to allow all nations to follow the Messiah on an equal footing with Israel. I am a Jew, Paul tells the Roman commander. First words out of his mouth to the commander, I am a Jew. First words out of his mouth to the angry crowd, brothers and fathers. It's as if Paul is saying, my people, please hear me. I'm still a Jew and I embrace the gospel of Jesus the Messiah. You don't have to let your Jewishness go if you're Jewish. So you could do this too. Here's the main point, at least, I'd like to leave you with this morning by way of application. Many ways we could go. Here's the one God put on my heart. God's history of the world and His sovereignty as history has played out. And indeed, the Bible, God's capital I inspired history, the Bible both tell us, both the history of the world and the Bible both tell us repeatedly that God's patience with those in power, His patience with those He has blessed with special status or power, God's patience always, always, always eventually runs out when those, God has given, those that God has given power abuse it for self at the expense of the weak and poor and those who suffer and the lost. Always. Whether Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, France, Britain, Germany, Japan, Russia, Iraq, and even Israel, to name but a few, and yes, my dear fellow Americans, even America one day, if we too abuse the power God has given us, abuse His blessings how? Abuse them by using them for our own sake at the expense of others, even in Jesus' words, at the expense of our enemies who Jesus commands us to love. Who knows who Peter Parker is? Spider-Man. Yeah, go ahead and say Spider-Man. In the movie and in the comic in 1962, both, Peter 
Parker, Spider-Man, really struggling to do, really struggling with what to do with all of this power now that is exploding in his body after he is bitten by a radioactive spider. And after getting into a fight at school with Flash Thompson and basically humiliating Flash in the fight, I mean, come on, after all, he's Spider-Man. You know, poor Flash didn't stand a chance. Peter's Uncle Ben has some advice for this power-surging, troubled nephew. Uncle Ben says to Peter these words. I'll bet many of you know them. It's one of the lasting lines from the movie. Who's got it? I hear it. Awesome. Say it, up. Say it out loud. Yes. Oh, yeah, uh, both of you, stand up together. Okay, go ahead, go ahead, put your arms around each other. Okay, in a loud voice, what did Uncle Ben tell Peter? Thank didn't they do a good job? He says to Peter, for those listening online at least, or those in the back who couldn't hear, With great power comes great responsibility. And then he says, just because you can beat someone up doesn't mean you have the right to. Gee, that almost sounds biblical. That's because it is. Stan Lee, original author of Spider-Man back in 1962, was teaching a class on literature one day. Yeah comic is literature, I guess, teaching a class on literature one day, and he told his class that the inspiration for the phrase, with great power comes great responsibility, guess where it came from, he said to his class. What gospel? Luke! Good guess, since he's our author today. Stan Lee tells us the inspiration came from Luke 12:48, where Jesus says, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. There's proportional giving there. That's another sermon. It comes from Luke, our author of Acts. Go figure. And so I say, I tell you, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, with confidence that indeed with great power comes great responsibility. My dear spider people... Spider-men, spider-women, spider-kids, spider-pig. No, that's... If you know what I mean by that, shame on you. You shouldn't watch those things. And just... Spider-pig came from that Simpson movie. So, And just because... Just because we can beat people up or can competitively defeat those who are weaker doesn't mean we have the right to. With great power comes great responsibility, my fellow Americans. With great power comes great responsibility, especially my fellow Christians. Abuse that power? Well, I have a question. Where is the Roman Empire today? Whatever happened to Nazi Germany? Christian nation, at least by reputation. Where are the pharaohs of Egypt? Where is Assyria? Where is the Persian Empire or the Empire of Alexander the Great? 
And the answer is, they're gone. Poof! And in my strong opinion, a key, if not ultimate reason, they're all gone, is they ended up abusing the power that God had given them by hurting the weak and the poor and those who struggle. And God's patience finally ran out. And my deep prayer, I hope it's yours too, is that someday someone teaching somewhere in the future will never ever ask for the same reason, where is America today? What of America and the American church today? Does our patriotism and pride in either or both arenas of our church and our nation that ever get in the way of our loving others as ourselves? Ever abuse that power? Inside the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty, the famous sonnet by Emma Lazarus is inscribed. It's called the New Colossus. She wrote it to dedicate Lady Liberty. And you'll recognize, I'll bet, the last part of this poem, I'm sure, but listen to her poem in its entirety. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name, Mother of Exiles, from her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed, to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Oh, I wish I had written that. What a statement. One illustration in closing this morning. Some of you may not like it. It's a political hot potato. So, and my thinking on it is still in progress. If you don't like it, you can pick your own illustration if you like. But I give you this one as food for thought, at least. Something to wrestle with, please. Today, even as I speak, America is building a wall along the Mexican border to keep the tired, poor, homeless refuse out. What do you think God thinks of our new wall? Now I know we should certainly have some proper procedure in place for registering immigrants and illegal aliens. I agree. Justice, prudence, even stewardship would seem to demand it. I agree. But what of mercy? Are we putting 
as much money, time, and effort in giving every possible opportunity for the temple tossed of the world to find safe harbor here in America? Or is that part not as great a concern as the wall? Because after all, all those immigrants take our jobs and strain our economy. Ouch! I mean, our very own West Bowles Church, our very own Frank Velasquez, can't get his wife into the country because they can't demonstrate sufficient hardship for her to be here. Never mind, her husband and children are all American citizens. Instead, we build a wall to help keep Frank's wife out and his family separated. Something is seriously wrong here. Where's that part again in the Statue of Liberty dedication that requires so much red tape that very few of the world's poor can get in? Is that the spirit of the symbol of our great nation? Is that the spirit of the symbol of the Statue of Liberty, whose name is Mother of Exiles, do you think? Be careful, America. Oh, be careful. God's patience always runs out when those He gives great power abuse it for themselves and at the expense of others. And so what must be done? Well, it starts here, with us, God's people. It starts, it starts with staying on our knees and begging God to keep America humble. To keep her fighting for the weak, the poor, and those who struggle. To use America somehow, some way, to reach the world with God's love. And not only, at least, as the primary influence in the world to get people to fall head over heels in love with themselves. And it starts here with us, with each person here, with each one of you and me, living lives, loving God and loving others as themselves, one person at a time. Dave Beatty said it perfectly this morning from his quote about an act of kindness in Jesus' name. And in that way, with God's help, influencing even our country to follow Jesus too. And in that way, may the whole world come to know that there is indeed a God, one true and living God. And that His heart for the lost, the poor, and those who struggle is huge and breaking with grief over where they are and what they're going through. And there's indeed salvation to any and all who would believe in His Son, Jesus the Messiah, whom God says He sent not to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him, John 3:17. Not save the world through America, although I hope God uses her and continues to use her to be a source of His love but not to save the world through America, God says, but to save the world through Jesus, the one who commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, I love my country. As I thought about it, as I thought about her this weekend, I tried to think of any country in the history of the world that has been blessed as much 
as America. I couldn't come up with one. What a beautiful place. What a beautiful country God has given us. Oh my goodness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are especially grateful this weekend as we look back and we remember your hand that followed the pilgrims here and fought a war to escape tyranny of those in power so that we could be free, free to worship you. Oh, Father, where are we? Where are we some two and a half centuries later? Have we become the tyrant? The tyrant? Have we become the tyranny? Father, help us to remember. And Father, please help us to take what has to be among at least the richest blessings you've ever poured out on any nation ever. Please, Father, help us to take those blessings and give it back to you by giving it to others, even our enemies, in amazing love that just floors them. So much so that they got to know, why in the world would you just do this for me? And in that way, Father, may we reach the world with your light, your freedom in Christ. Please, Father. God, please bless America. Continue to bless her. Don't give up on her. Help us to be your instruments of helping and making America great by loving the world with your love through the opportunity that America gives us. We love you, and we ask all of this in the matchless, blessed name of your Son, Jesus the Messiah, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Love you guys. Drive safe. Thank you.